This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome, one and all, to your genre-hopping, movie-reviewing, and reappraising podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And every so often on this show, what schedule are we on right now? I think by bi-weekly. Noah, what are you talking about today? Today, we're talking about the newcomer who shows up on the television set and throws the status quo into chaos. There we go. So we have uh, the recent Late Night, mm-hmm. 2010's Morning Glory, and then we have 2004's Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. I want to say at the front of today's show, give some love to the to the Playlist Podcast Network, which we should do. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, Ryan Oliver's been doing an awesome job recently of just doing kind of like weekend recaps for all the movies you might have missed. There's also a new indie beat. Listen to them and find us there. We're starting with the new movie, Late Night. Please. I would love that. Mindy Kaling, who you'd know from The Office, Mindy Project, Ocean's 8, Wrinkle in Time. Is that what, is that what people know her from? No. I'm just saying things I know her from. Um, she's the newcomer, our, our newcomer, our hook, to, uh, to a late night program hosted by Catherine Newberry, played by Emma Thompson. And she's like a really interesting slash maybe discordant amalgam of real life people. I want to spend so long talking about that. Um, Absolutely. But she's kind of a lioness in winter, in network TV winter figure. Um, she's also very unkind <laughs> and acerbic. They're surrounded by myriad, uh, you know, nondescript white dudes, uh, including Dan Egan from Veep, um, that guy who plays the dumbest racist in Black Klansman. <laughs> and uh, who's the hot guy? Hugh Dancy? I love Hugh Dancy because he is such a diet Rob Lowe. Yes. <laughs> it is unbelievable. <laughs> he has that like over enunciating thing and he's yeah. got sort of this like smooth but like sort of dirty charm to him. But yes, yeah, so this movie sort of unfolds as the devil. Wear- I, I mean, you can see an executive pitching this as the devil wears Prada meets Morning Glory. Yes. Yeah. Morning Glory, though, like not that successful of a movie. Um, no. And we'll see what this one does, but I think it's in third place behind a pretty weak Men in Black International. If you look at its opening, and I'll, we'll talk more about that later, it's not going to do what Morning Glory did uh, nine years ago in terms of business, it doesn't look like. Um, and it's got that very sort of Nancy Myers tackles an industry with only a vague understanding of its sensibilities to yep. it. 
which is which has its incredible. Charms. You like yeah. that? I prefer. I would love to live in the world that Nancy Myers movies believe that is transpiring in front of us, like the magazine industry of what women want. Yep. Uh, the Broadway theater scene of something's got to give. Mm-hmm. You know, the Airbnb of uh, the holiday. These all sound charming. The uh, what's the one with Meryl Streep where she just basically like runs a Panera and like redo- redoes her kitchen in the most glamorous way? It's complicated. It's compli- It's not complicated. <laughs> That's what we like. That's what we like. Uh, but this has that patina to it, and a strikingly good cast. Mm-hmm. Like everywhere you look, there's like oh, there's Dennis O'Hare playing like the executive producer. It's like were you in Michael Clayton? What are you doing here? He's running in the street. Those halogen lights have put him <laughs> behind bars, and he's had to now put in uh, community service here at the local TV affiliate. That's right. Uh, and Reed Scott, I should say, is Dan Egan from Veep. He's the kind of like the monologue writer, and just totally epitomizes along with Hugh Dancy the kind of like Harvard bred nepotistic right almost like movie... incestual pool of people that these employers pull from who are you i'm molly mm-hmm. i'm a new writer you want to sit down okay that's where metal sits could you sit down please oh i'll just use uh this trash can there's you know there's hardly any trash in it at all oh it's kind of comfortable better than a chair that's our show everyone i came to tell you this year is your last what they can't replace you if everyone loves you do none of you understand what is at stake here? I am being replaced. Think about why the show is bad and come up with ways to fix it. I wish I was a woman of color so I could just get me job I want. We talked about this, you can't say that. I know what everyone thinks of me, but just because I was lucky enough to get this job doesn't mean I'm stupid enough to lose it. What exactly is wrong with my bits? You're a little old and a little white. What can I do about that? I have some jokes for the monologue. I shouldn't do this in an English accent, should I? No. Can we talk off the bat just about Mindy Kaling's character? I mean, she's the writer of this movie, so it's not like she was thrust upon like some existing IP. That's right. Um, yeah, she plays Molly Patel. We should also say that uh, Nisha Ganatra is the director of this movie. So directed by a woman of color who whose other work I wasn't super familiar with. This is a lot definitely, of TV stuff. Yeah, this is definitely her mo- her biggest swing to date. But I think it's interesting. So the setup here is that. Mindy Kaling's character, Molly, has written an essay contest thing that is being held at her chemical plant where she works as a compliance person. Right. And the winning essayist gets a chance to speak with, like, an executive at the corporation. So she picks the CEO of, like, the entire conglomerate that she works for who's also the ceo of this is supposed to be like general electric and comcast or something where they're all sort of same thing from 30 rock right where alec baldwin is like works for general electric and gets put in charge of a comedy show right it's essentially the same thing but she is sort of coming from the bottom half of that world where because she got a recommendation or something from the ceo she's somehow up for this interview but otherwise, like, totally unqualified for this position. And that sort of opens up this world that I think we must talk about when we talk about this movie in 2019. Because this movie knows that it's being released in 2019. Uh, with all of its sort of asides about political correctness and Me Too and the workplace and stuff like that. But this movie is so strange to me because you'd think that, like, I mean, Mindy Kaling herself, like, did not write an essay from some chemical plant. You know, 
why isn't this character just like a comedian who went to Rutgers or something right. and like is trying desperately to get in the door and won an essay contest. Like this weird throwaway joke sort of weirdly pokes at that idea of, oh, if it's like with affirmative action, like, oh, is this person qualified? Because inherently she's not qualified. And that's sort yeah. of the joke of the movie, which is not a read I really get. It doesn't make yeah, it doesn't make sense because um, it leaves Molly without an actual comedic perspective. What if she was a comedy writer who was trying really hard to break exactly. in? Why couldn't they find a comedian of color who's a woman who's trying really hard, who deserves this job more than any of the dozen white guys in this room? Right. They just pick some random person, which almost says more about how like white centric culture hires for these sorts of positions. Sure. Yeah. Both this and uh, Christina Applegate's character in Anchorman are to use kind of a crass term, diversity hires. Right. Emma and Thompson they both are, is basically it's like commented on. Yeah. Get me a woman. I, we need a woman in here. Um, Absolutely. But if you can swallow that though, yeah. I think what she brings is a really interesting and sort of, weird fish out of water ultimately interesting romantic comedy character protagonist tour guide yes mindy kaling loves romantic comedies you know it's funny too because kelly kapoor the her office character like is constantly speaking to other people in the language trying to bond with them through like romantic comedies and it seems that that obsession for her is real and while i do find as you said the molly character sort of surprisingly blank mindy kaling the writer has a very keen sense of like the different people that need to pop up in this movie they're sort of like she's not really the protagonist she's more the narrator of what is essentially Catherine newberry's story yeah the agent of change for because the, the protagonist is Catherine Newberry and the antagonist is the head of the studio, the head of the network. Amy who's Ryan. Who's canceling. Yeah, Amy Ryan, who's trying to cancel her. And that's ultimately the premise of the movie is yeah. that Catherine Newberry is trying not to have her seminal late night show on whatever network television channel she's on uh, canceled because of 10 years of internal rot and like downward uh, right. viewership. But... It's not really Mindy Kaling's movie other than it's like her movie to guide you scene to scene. And then they sort of paste unceremoniously this romantic subplot at both the front and the end that they feel this movie needs mm-hmm. that maybe doesn't. There's like the, you know, the nicer white guy who turns out to be a snake and then the snakier handsome white guy who turns out to be nice. You have the immovable object of Emma Thompson. You have kind of the older harmless advice givers of Max Casella and John Lithgow who plays Emma Thompson's husband. It's incredible that Stanley Tucci's not in this movie. <laughs> what was the Tucci doing when this was cast? You know that the uh, Dennis O'Hare Brad part was written for Holy like shit. Stanley Tucci type. Like if it doesn't stay Stanley Tucci type in the script, I would be dumbfounded. But Dennis O'Hare was like, I'm not a miracle worker. I'm a janitor. Get me in that movie. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, let me go to, I, I have nice things to say about this movie, but you kind of, you went in on the Molly Patel character. I'm going to go in on Catherine Newberry because I the, I think the fundamental flaw of this movie is that it's one of those sort of faux rom-coms, if we can agree on that, that pretty much argues that, like, work is life, right? Right. Like, she's... There is no, like, uh, you know, true romantic love at the end of this tunnel. It's that uh, the show gets better and she loves her job. And when you're making a work is life comedy, 
you have to try to get the work right. And the complete lack of verisimilitude around this show is like maddening to me. I was discussing this uh, with Lucy, my girlfriend, as we were walking through Prospect Park after watching this movie. And the idea of it took Mindy Kaling coming in to tell this Tonight Show in 2019, and it knows that it's 2019, to not have any political humor, like, in the monologue? Like, what year is this? Like, it's not 1980 talking about menopause. Like, it's 2019. Like, that's incredible. Like, if you see what, in the juxtaposed with, like, what Seth uh, Myers and Jimmy Kimmel and uh, Jimmy Fallon are doing every night, that they're like, they take Trump in the crosshairs almost as a matter of course. Colbert? Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. And so that's where this gets very confusing, because it's a very 2019 movie that feels like it's set in 2003. And the answer to the question of who is Catherine Newberry, on the, my first comp was like, she's Jay Leno. She just like won't get political. She wants to tell one-liners. She's trying to stay in the air for a million years. They have the same shock of <laughs> volume, voluminous white hair. Um, but then the movie does the thing where it's like, but she's also incredibly intellectual. And I'm like, well, who is that? Is that like Dick Cavett? Like who, who, who is like... Who? I think it's more of Letterman. I think she's supposed to be Letterman. Like sort of he was apolitical for a very long time until he got sort of sarcastic. And it wasn't until he like shifted into that mode in the early 2000s of being like, I know that I'm sarcastic and cynical, but I'll like play it up for laughs. And then they like had some more fun with it. But... There's no, like, relevant comp. I mean, the New York Times, in their review, points out that, like, this movie, to make a point about feminism, has to create this sort of alternate universe that's already more feminist, where there is a woman in that sort of role and has been there for 20 years in order to make that point. Yeah, which is crazy and sad. It is crazy and sad. But then the other side of that is, man, if you can watch Seth Meyers every week and Ander, Amber Ruffin and Jenny Hagel and Karen Chi come on and he brings out his diverse female writers and they do some of the best sketches on the show. Like this is also, it's it's both like evolved the late night world and purposely made it more retrograde. And it just ends up in this like weird cocktail of like, where are we? And I think the answer you gave at the top is right. Like we're in the Nancy Myers verse. Right. We're in the Nancy Myers verse of what's happening now, which is always what's happening like five to ten years ago, which is also never something that ever happened. <laughs> so, it's these like morality plays that would have worked better had they been even like adjacently based on a true story, but like certainly are not. Yes. So like, these examples don't exist. If you can accept the Myers verse, there are some good things here. I think that Emma Thompson has a kind of like camera readiness and polish about her where like even when she is you know being cruel in the writer's room if somebody was like hey there's a camera over there like her mouth would crinkle like just enough and her eyes would light up and she really kind of nails that idea of somebody who is really off when they're off but like could be on in a moment a really like deep insincerity certainly yeah she's good But I also think that there is a sort of interesting pathos to her relationship with John Lithgow, her husband, the preeminent something, Walter Lovell. Is he? Yeah. What is he? He's like a jazz musician. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) Like that he has a piano in his house doesn't necessarily signal that is his profession. I thought maybe he's like a novelist, Walter Lovell. It could be an astronaut. Like who knows? (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah, there's that even that part in the movie where he's like, I'm Walter Lovell. I and Mindy Kaling's like, I know who you are. And you're like, what? I really wanted him to say who he was. Please tell me. Why'd you jump in there? Yeah. Um, No. Famous oceanographer, Walter Lovell, you know? Definitely. Who knows? Point is, he can't do it anymore because he's sick. He has Parkinson's. He can't Mm -hmm. do it anymore. I really liked the just the subtle hand tremor that Lithgow puts on towards like the climactic emotional scene where they're like inexplicably in that theater that they were in earlier for the cancer thing. Oh, right. Weird. It was very weird. If she's not doing any comedy, how did she book a theater to host a comedy night? I thought she was like, the joke was she was attending that benefit. I didn't realize she was emceeing it until the scene where she stands up for herself and says, I have to go emcee. Right. I was like, oh, I thought you just bought a ticket. Yeah. There are anyway. some beats that work great. Like when Catherine Newberry is like, if you go to that, you're fired. And Mindy Kaling's like, I'm sorry I made a commitment. And then Catherine Newberry shows up at the thing to do comedy. It's like, that is classic. Perfect. I really liked it. And if we can play that out a little bit, the idea that she goes on to do comedy but like not well at first and it's not until she takes the suggestion of mindy kaling that she like pulls out from this full-on dive bomb of a performance yeah but that that goes back to that thing that like her character just doesn't make any sense to me if she's an intellectual who would rather talk about french plays than youtube videos no then she knows that the tenor of the day is political commentary like, how does she not know that? Like, her properties don't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, with Donald Trump as the president, I don't think we can talk about menopause. It's like, right. are you kidding me? Have you not gone out in public? Right. It's And maybe she hasn't. And there is some sort of interesting commentary in that Norma Desmondy kind of way of what happens to women of a certain age. Not only the way we treat them on television, but also sort of this web of people that they surround them with surround themselves with that don't necessarily have their best intentions Mm -hmm. because the whole setup is that like the the writers of her show have never met her nor they've never been in the set which is impossible (laughs) which is a totally ridiculous thing to uh to have believe is be something that exists in the industry but it also says like so the only points of contact that this woman has are her husband's and her executive producer and this the CEO of this company that's trying to chase her down and cancel her show. Right. Like, that's insane. Yeah. She's marooned. Yeah. And all she has are these sequin jackets. But that's a pretty... But her fashion is incredible. incredible. These, like, double-breasted suits that she wears. Jay Leno wishes. Oh, my God, Jay Leno. I, I, I can't agree with you on the Jay Leno comp. Who? I was thinking Craig Ferguson, but she's she's clearly much more ubiquitous than a Craig Ferguson. Well, Craig Ferguson's so charming and flirty and weird. Yeah, and then he had that like Finster studio they used to shoot in, and everything was like everything looked like that climactic zombie battle from Game of Thrones. Like yeah. you couldn't quite see who was on the program. <laughs> you couldn't quite see the bits they were trying to do. It was great. That for me was the problem with Ferguson those last couple of years. You couldn't see who the guests were. They just wouldn't replace the lights, so you couldn't see anything. That's hilarious. Or maybe like, yeah, certainly without the whimsy of a Conan, because Conan is her exact opposite. He's so mi- middle of the road that he's camp. Well, cr- and cripplingly self-aware. <laughs> right. Right. 
It's amazing to me that, I mean, I think we're saying the same thing here, but it's amazing to me that a movie can come out that portrays a performer without any sense of self-irony in 2019. Right. Like, who are those people? Yeah, this movie, it's such a sincere movie, which is nice. I I found this movie to be, as we turn toward a rating, nice. Like, oh, it's so nice. I think the problem is that the movie, because it is so much about like gender and sex politique like really invites you to lean in and like look closely at how the characters relate because it's all they talk about right is like white privilege um advancements of feminism uh limits of certain kinds of feminism and so when a movie does that it is sort of like come on look at me much much more than a movie like morning glory does so we get into this place where it's like yeah i looked at you and you were like weird and you didn't make any sense but as a movie like morning glory i think it's you know comparable it's in the ballpark and is probably like a bad good yeah i mean it's definitely more interested in the industry than morning glory is morning glory I mean, I texted this to you when we were watching this chance, but I don't know that Harrison Ford has ever watched like Good Morning America or anything that no would way. resemble no on the other side of the spectrum way. news. Right. Like, I don't even think he would. He's never watched Walter, Walter Cronkite or somebody like that. Like, just deliver that kind of. He has no idea what he's doing. He's like apartheid is still happening. <laughs> he thinks that's like news or something. And we must end it. Right. Um, let's tell people real quick. I jumped the gun though. Our rating system, two parts, right? The first part's, uh, perceived technical and cinematic quality. The second part is entertainment value and rewatchability. So a good, good movie would be like Jaws. A good, bad movie would be like Schindler's List. A bad, good movie would be like, uh, Hook. Hook. (laughs) I'm just doing (laughs) Steven Spielberg movies. I wasn't expecting that. Minority Report. Oh, that might be good, good. And what's a bad, bad? Uh, 1941. Mm. Um, AI. War of the Worlds. I'm going to hard disagree on AI. Um, I haven't seen that in years. But if you know what a bad, bad movie is. You feel like you're wasting your time. Right. So a bad, good movie, which is what I call this, is a movie that, like, when held up to, like, scrutiny of the script or the filmmaking, which the filmmaking is fine. Um, we literally reference Nancy Myers in the textbook definition of what a bad good movie <laughs> that's is. That's right. And so, being as this is a Nancy Myers acolyte, uh, yeah, I agree with you that it is a bad good, but totally a movie you should watch when it's inevitably on HBO. Well, it's going to be on Amazon. Oh, it's yeah, that's right. It because will be on they Amazon. bought it for. Let's talk real quick before we move on. So they bought this for like thirteen million dollars out of Sundance, which is a big buy. Um, this movie was at Sundance? That's right. <laughs> but I couldn't help but think about this as this movie's about to make only about oh, six, seven million dollars this weekend. That, don't, um, that doesn't matter, I don't think, to them. To Amazon? Well, it's not released. I was looking in like the five boroughs, like where it was playing. It's not even in that many theaters. I almost think it's like a, this is almost a marketing campaign for inevitable, like the inevitably this the streaming value of it sure as they just build their prime video library i guess Weird. but it's definitely a, a great streaming kind of thing it's true it's just strange it's like i was thinking about this too because we're recording this on a sunday 
And I was, you know, in the wake of all the book smart stuff, which again, Ryan Oliver did a really awesome job of breaking that down on the playlist podcast. Um, and sort of just the firestorm of like, what were you guys expecting from this movie? Um, but it's Sunday night and Streep, Kidman, Witherspoon, Dern, Kravitz, and Woodley are about to show up on your TV on HBO. And the idea that people are going to go to the theater for Emma Thompson is just like, I don't know. I don't think that's the time we're living in. It's a quiet romantic comedy minus really the romance plus like a weird. And that's the thing, too. I think viewers are savvy enough post 30 Rock and other sort of deep dives into what the television industry must look like. I mean, after seeing like several seasons of the Larry Sanders show, like, oh you know God. how these programs work. Right. And to think that it's so sort of vanilla as this movie is. Like, why would you go to the theater to see that? This is not Aaron Sorkin's late night. Like, you know, this is fluffy streaming stuff. Right. And I feel like I need to get out, maybe like, and I say we like, you know, film Twittery as though that's like a body of people. Like, it's just weird that like a movie like like late night comes out and it's just like a referendum on like, can these movies survive? It's just like, this isn't the, this if this had come out in 2002, like, even it, and it made its money back, like, who would give a shit? This movie's a referendum right. on nothing. No, and I think this movie should be released in the, this way, like, in limited theaters for two or three weeks and then put it on streaming. Right. That, if I don't catch it in theaters, I'll certainly catch it on streaming. Don't you worry. <laughs> I was never going to miss this movie. So, But I think I only represent maybe, like, $6 million worth of people. That, I've always said that about you. The $6 million <laughs> man is what I call you. <laughs> Yeah, but there's also that question, too, and we don't have to answer it now, uh, the idea of criticism lately as existential threat. Yes, oh, God. You know, like, there's that comical New York Times piece from a few weeks ago where it's like, as Rocket Man enters theater, Hollywood holds its breath. <laughs> and it's like, okay. That's not... was right. we're, we're someone sitting in an office somewhere in, you know, Studio City being like... <gasps> <laughs> If Rocket Man doesn't turn out, we'll never make another adult film. Right. We'll and only in, do Pixar and Marvel. That's right. Fair enough. Um, you want to talk about 2010's Morning Glory? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So this is a movie directed by Roger Mitchell, who his most famous movies are Notting Hill, definitely in the rom-com space, and Changing Lanes, not in the rom-com space. Um Script by uh, Aileen Brosh McKenna, who wrote Devil Wears Prada and co-created Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, sort of another kind of signal of like, where did these people go who wanted to make rom-coms in the 2010s that didn't quite work out? They went to TV. Um, you want to synopsize this one, buddy? Sure. Um, so the movie picks up with uh, total, I think it's safe to say total lunatic, Rachel McAdams. <laughs> who's... She can't hold a conversation. She can't hold a conversation with another person. The only thing she does how to do is produce a fluffy morning show, which she does for a local New Jersey access show with a minimal budget. Uh, And in the prologue, her position is terminated in favor of someone with more experience. So she shotguns her resume out into the world, follows up a gazillion times with everyone, and finally ends up in the office of one Ian Malcolm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. What's his character's name in here? Jerry Barnes. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't strike me as a Jerry Barnes. 
Jeff Goldblum is in charge of the network, the networking of the like morning slot of this sort of C or it's a network. So it's called IBS sort of right. comically. Yes. And the show's called uh, Daybreak. Daybreak on IBS, which is such a comical thing to say. And they're perpetually um, in fourth, right? Behind today's show. Perpetually in fourth. Right. And they're looking for an executive producer to fill this role and turn the show around parenthetically before it gets canceled. Uh, and there have been, you know, eight, executive producers in the past two years or something and they look at rachel mcadams this is the crew of the television show including including the star diane keaton uh and ty burrell is this weird foot fetish co-host yes that was kind of a sick scene um but they all look at rachel mcadams with this kind of apprehension or eye rolling thing because what can this young woman change about this stuck in a rut morning program that's destined to just be put out of its misery. She has a lot in common with Molly Patel in terms of just the, like the sheer earnestness. Like this is a newcomer who thinks they can change everything in a room full of people who have calcified in the last two decades. Did you get a job yet? No, but I have feelers out. Lots. So you're a fan of our morning program? So many yeah, yeah, we know it's terrible. Coming up tomorrow, we'll show you what to do with those shampoo bottles with just an inch of shampoo left. Huh. Daybreak's understaffed, underfunded. Any producer who works there will be publicly ridiculed, overworked, on the pay. Awful. I'll take it. I'd like to offer you the position of co-host of Daybreak. After the career that I've had. <laughs> Is he going to cook? Is he going to do fashion segments and gossip? Not my thing. You happen to be a pretentious, fatuous idiot. A fatuous idiot who makes three times what you make. So now is an excellent time for you to take up drinking. What's going on now? Mike is offended by a word in the next story. It's about Easter chicks. I'm not saying the word fluffy. There's this really actually good scene, I think, pretty early on. They're at a meeting, the first meeting of discussing the budgeting for the week or whatever. And uh, Rachel McAdams receives like 35 questions, like back to back to back to back to back. Yeah. And she takes it all in and it becomes this montage where voice over voice and you like can't hear anything. And her eyes are sort of glazing over and there's a beat. And then she begins to answer all the questions competently. Right. And it's like, oh my God, like maybe this person who we didn't really believe could do this, like can do this. And I think at that point it becomes a movie that's easy to watch in like a watch her go. Like she's chasing down Jeff Goldblum, uh, jogging through Central Park with her, her Nielsen ratings. Right. Like it's, it's incredible. That's, I'm so glad you signaled that. It's one of the single best parts of the movie. And it kind of, the other good thing about that scene is that the questions are all very clever and are all exactly what you would expect of a fourth place morning show. Somebody's like, can we get the third lead in the new Patrick Dempsey movie? Um, I was thinking we could measure my toxins. Um, like, what race should the baby be in our, like, uh, spawn con of the new, <laughs> of this, you know, Gerbers we're selling for the Miami affiliate or something like that. And then she, yeah, she spills it all out and you weren't expecting that. And that's the thing I think this movie has that, uh, late night curiously does not is you're like oh this person's good I want it to go well it has that savant thing that yes. I think late night may suffer a bit from like I wanted Mindy Kaling to be more of a savant yes you know there's that moment going back to late night where she sort of 
uses her uh, her first career in the chemical plant to sort of diagnose the problems with the show, but that never really goes anywhere. Unlike this one, you know, it's almost like Slumdog Millionaire. She's prepared her whole life for like this moment, and she can handle anything that's coming to her. The kind of end of the first act, big shakeup is that Tyburl, the foot fetish sleaze ball, is immediately fired. They have to find somebody who's under contract with the network already. And, and uh, then the movie takes on its biggest biggest challenge yet. <laughs> In Mike which Pomeroy. It almost seems like whoever produced this movie had Harrison Ford on a contract to do <laughs> any movie. Exactly. Yes. And then Harrison Ford was thrown into this role as sort of uh, like a Dan Rather who he's at dinner with <laughs> that one scene. Oh, he is? Yeah, he's with all like the old legends. It's okay. Dan Rather. And uh, like Mike Wallace and, but he's supposed to be in that ilk and he's like gotten so weirdly like left wing sort of conspiracy theory, boring news reporting that they've laid him off or not laid him off, but told him that he's like off the nightly news. He like aspires to return to being like the presenter of 60 minutes or whatever. And now he's just wasting away in some office and so, yeah, it's the natural thing to fulfill his contract by putting him alongside Diane Keaton. But, of course, somebody who hasn't thought about, like, journalistic evolution since Edward R. Murrow does not want to be Al Roker. Right. So, yeah, let's talk, let's talk about this performance because it is... I don't think I've dropped this word on the show before because I'm not entirely comfortable with it. But this performance is, I think, what the kids call a little extra... Um, oh, it's certainly extra. I mean, he begins as sort of like a like a brooding, you know, like outdoorsman type who's like he, like there's scenes with him like killing birds and things, and he's like shouting like I want that man, give him to me, <laughs> and That's and then true, by the but... end of it, he's like reciting verse and like making egg dishes. Right. It's totally like bonkers. It's insane. Well, because and his shtick. You've seen him do this where it's just like, you know, Harrison Ford is ramping up the cro- his like natural crotchetiness to like intimidate someone. Like it's a bit he'll do on Conan for two or three minutes at a time. But in this movie, he does it for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> he sure does. And it's not very good. Can I say that? Well, he it is no closer to actual newsman behavior than Ron Burgundy. No, it is. And that's the thing, too. Like, that's what I don't get about him. Much like his character uh, and uh, Catherine Newberry from Late Night, they're these weird people who, like, don't exist in real news. Yes. Like, why would you have this, like, wasting away newsman with all this money left on his contract if he, like, was a fringe, no appeal kind of person? Like, is that something that happens? Can, like, an executive producer just get a hold of someone's contract and read it in Bryant Park and be like, aha, you can make a frittata. We can compel you legally to make a frittata on live television. Is that a thing that happens? I have no idea. But I will say that this movie, and maybe it's just because I don't know as much about network news as I do from, like, watching a lot of late night TV through the years, this movie doesn't like skimp on the details. Even if they're false, they're, she's like, whoever gave you promo approval in your contract as he's like whining about 
the promos is just like, oh, that's an interesting detail. Um, I love the close-ups on the guy who's directing the actual feed. He's like a conductor. Right. It's incredible. It's really cool to watch. This movie has those flourishes that you can tell they like paid some people to be like, this is how a TV station runs. Yeah. But they just don't get like the big picture questions of sort of things they should get as studio people making a very studio movie. Maybe I just think this because I rewatched it recently, but there's some odd kind of parallels to network with this movie. Because you first Certainly. of all, you have the IBS UBS thing. And then you have this thing of like the fourth place network repurposing their sort of Howard Beale slash Mike Pomeroy into this like completely ill-fitting like new thing that kind of like slowly makes him lose his mind. Of course, that's more the point of network, but like there is a lot of, and then you just have Goldblum as just being like, ah, da, Nielsen ratings, not, not good enough. Not yet. No. (laughs) Oh, it's such a good impression. Thank you. But then I have to say though, with the help of one Patrick Wilson. What a I fucking this, dreamboat. Yeah, such a dreamboat. <laughs> wearing his like $10,000 suit with his tie, like slightly, you know, like these people have any money. It's so funny. Like <laughs> at once the sets are both so decadent as to be unbelievable. Yeah. But like also kind of like silly. Like his office has like, five analog televisions like stacked on each other it's like why would anyone have that and like would that ever happen but also kind of an interesting detail right right. the way Minnie Kaling and Emma Thompson connect the way that Harrison Ford like does his show up at the cancer event thing which in this one is like making a frittata while she's weirdly in an interview during the broadcast of both of their programs yeah like that doesn't make any sense to me that you'd have like five executives while the show that they produce is on interviewing this person in this white conference room with the TV playing the live feed behind them to a different channel but makes no it's sense perfect but it's perfect. It sets up perfect in this Nancy Myers world, like the oh, uh, uh, give me that woman back. I, I must make her. Who has eggs? Does anyone have eggs? It's fantastic. Like, Harrison Ford's running around the set trying to make this frittata that he's made earlier, and then he lands it with something like, "I only make frittatas for people I care about," <laughs> and like that is what convinces. Just the way Mindy Kaling goes from Seth Meyers back to late night or whatever yeah. uh rachel mcadams does not take the job at good morning america she stays at daybreak with her irritable bowel syndrome right well because yeah even though he is doing such a bad job of trying to be walter cronkite in his old age he has that thing in his eyes like a hound dog that's just about to be put down where when she when she cuts through him which to be fair she tries to she like gives her Hail Mary speech to him six times in this movie. It's way too many times. But when you see his eyes sort of soften into despair, like it does work, I think, on an emotional level in much the same way it's like, yes, I do want Molly and Catherine to come together. As much as I like the idea of this movie and the universe in which this movie exists i think i found this one more ridiculous than late night in it's just sort of weird grasp on like how people work and like workaholics function and like i understand on one 
And I just have trouble relating or empathizing or sympathizing even with the Rachel McAdams Becky character. Yes. Well, you know, and we were gonna, I was going to bring this up eventually. You know who she is like riffing on is Holly Hunter in Broadcast News. Yes. And except, but not in a, in a charming way, in kind of like a Rain Manny kind of way. Well, she is. the The problem is that nobody is as good at their job as as this MC Adams character or that Holly Hunter character unless they are incredibly intelligent. And it's Holly Hunter's intelligence that gets in her own way as she tries to like have or not have these relationships with William Hurd and Albert Brooks. And the MC Adams character, when she kind of like... Why do you keep saying MC Adams? That's what I call her. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's my, it's my, it's my name for her. You've never heard keep me going. say MC Adams? Maybe I did. I thought I misheard myself and I didn't say anything. But here's the moment. But she plays that character too dumb. She does. That's, I think, what's not. Because, like, Mindy Kaling, like, why you root for her is you can tell that she, like, has a plan here. Yes. At least at some point. This one just sort of feels like she's waiting. It's almost like watching the television equivalent of For Love of the Game. Where she sort of like waits for the mechanism to engage and then like kind of just like <laughs> zhuzhes it a little until it works. Uh-huh. Because she's not, I mean, and that's the thing, like her impulses and like her education on this New Jersey affiliate or whatever, I mean, initially leads her to do the wrong thing and make the ratings worse for the show. Yeah. So, but I guess the whole point is to get it to run like a well-oiled machine before you give it something new to do. And then, of course, Harrison Ford breaks down and exposes a governor who's about to be served a 20-count felony for whatever, racketeering. The gov- Andrew Cuomo? <laughs> yeah. Come this, on. This old raisin, this old has-been, somehow like makes two calls not that discreetly in yeah. his office with the tropical fruit plate. And like suddenly he knows that a bust is about to happen. I would ask Morning Glory the same question I asked the movie You Were Never Really Here, which was like every, you know, film critic's favorite movie from last year, where like the governor of New York again like performs like unspeakable crimes. It's like, do you you guys know what a governor is? Like governors do not get arrested on twenty counts of racketeering. Governors I mean, do not get their throats slashed by like sex slaves. Right. <laughs> Governors, you guys, look it up. Um, so. That being said, though. Yeah. Diane Keaton is pretty incredible in this movie. This is, yeah, this is perfect for her. She, I was telling, talking to Sarah about this last night. She has a very kind of fallow period in her career in the 80s and 90s. But it's this moment in the 2000s when women writers and filmmakers start to like write responses or reprisals to what were her 70s Woody Allen characters that she starts to pop again absolutely I think she definitely pops in this and she's got really good chemistry with her and Harrison Ford because they're like two Hollywood has-beens at this point yeah and they're just like having a good job in kind of the way of arguing for their own career trajectories. Where like Diane Keaton's like, I'll do anything you guys want. You put me in book club, put me in Nancy Myers, I'll do whatever. 
uh, and Harrison Ford's like still waiting for those dignified roles. Right. So they're not coming. What's what do you want to rate I, it? I think it's a soft bad good. Soft meaning like which way would it more likely slide? I think it's close to being bad bad. I th- I like this movie more than Late Night. I think it's interesting. I think it's also a bad good. I think it would be crazy to say that it's good good. Um but I found yeah the detailing around the work even though it is yes outlandish. I was like, yeah, this is People are at least saying the things and shining the light about what you would do to improve a morning show, which which I think is good. I also just watched the hell out of the first like frittata cooking scene. And you know what I picked up this time is that on Harrison Ford's counter, there is like a cooking bowl with no fewer than 40 shallots in it. Like what? <laughs> just sitting out in the open air of his little used apartment. <laughs> That's Bizarre. incredible. You know, Chance, the key to a good frittata is frittata. a very hot pan. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, he's such a fucking ham in this movie. And like, it's mostly not good, but it does kind of work. All right. You want to talk about Anchorman? Let's do it. Okay. Anchorman is a famous movie. <laughs> More famous than these other two. Um as Noah said at the top, it is from 2004. Its subtitle is The Legend of Ron Burgundy. It is the first Adam McKay movie. It is Will Ferrell at his initial peak. It comes one year after Elf in terms of uh, Will Ferrell, you know, top-lining movies. Um, it is for people in our age group, I think, a ubiquitous movie. And liked by many, but I learned a surprising fact about Noah recently that he was pretty out on this movie at one time. Can you can you start us? I walked out of this movie in theaters. Um, one of the only movies I've ever walked out of. Wow. Um, did not care for it. Did not care for it when it came out. Did not care for <laughs> it in 2019. Ah, there it is. Um, okay. Is it because it's stupid? It is because it's stupid. Like, yes. that's my big issue. So let's get into the the plot of this movie, which is similar to the other movies we've discussed. You have the status quo, which is this hyper-masculine, hyper-white, hyper-toxic space. Uh, the San Diego News team, uh, Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd, Steve Carell. Um, what's his name? The other guy. Scott Robinson. No. David Keckner. Champ kind. Um, and they're this sort of misogynist, xenophobic news team uh, that goes around doing the good news work in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s? 70s. 70s. Um, until Christina Applegate, Veronica Corningstone, famously, uh, comes into the news team because... Fred Willard, Ed Harkin, the uh, producer of the show, says they need uh, a woman's face uh, at the front of the program. So they, she comes on first as a reporter and then works her way up to being on the desk with Ron Burgundy, who is both fascinated, uh, entranced by this woman, and also like fiercely defensive and paranoid of her stealing his throne. 
There was a time when people believed everything they heard on TV. This was an age when only men were allowed to read the news. And one anchor man was more man than the rest. Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy? Damn it! Who typed a question mark on the teleprompter? Hey, Garth, how's the divorce? Oh, not so good. I'll probably never see my kids. Fantastic. I'm not lonely. I'm beloved by everyone in San Diego. You're so wise. You're like a miniature Buddha covered in hair. What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your passions? To be the first female anchor. And I'd like to be king of Australia. Seriously, you sound like an insane person. I just got a call from Network, and the decision has been passed down to make Veronica our co-anchor. No! 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 Don't get me wrong. I love the ladies, but they don't belong in the newsroom. It is anchor man, not anchor lady. I don't know what we're yelling about. My problem with this movie is that I think it is so stupid that it not only doesn't satirize anything, it just sort of celebrates uh, toxic masculinity for however long, 93 minutes or whatever it is. I don't think it's supposed to be a satire. I think it's supposed to be absurd. Okay. Like, okay, so I can, I can hear in your description, and I think most people can, and I don't think you're totally wrong, but I can hear the way you're watching it, taking it very seriously. Like, even, like, hyper-masculine, yes. But let me tell you, I think this movie also tells you how it wants you to watch it. The very last outtake in the credits is from a movie that is not Anchorman. Do you remember what movie it is? No. It's Smokey and the Bandit 2. And what happens <laughs> in that outtake is that Burt Reynolds has no goddamn idea what his line is. And Sally Field, his, you know, capable, charming partner on screen and off at the time, is just like laughs in his face. Like, Burt, you moron. And that's what this movie is going for. It's It's aiming for like a nostalgic moment where like, the men are infants, the women are whip smart, and life is just like a fucking Long Island iced tea. And I don't think that it's arguing that real life was ever like that, but I think it is arguing that a movie space like that, that Burt Reynolds, if we like go to the core of him, is just an eight-year-old in cowboy clothes in the same way that uh, Champ, Brick, Brian, and Ron are just playing dress-up in checkered slacks. Like, I think that this will be very dissatisfying if we take it seriously. You can. I'll listen to you, but... I don't have anything serious to say about it. Okay. I just didn't, like, get that memo up front that, like, this is stupid. And right. I guess I, like, never really connected with this era of filmmaking that, like, lasted from the early 2000s to, like, into the Apatow getting more realistic kind of era. Okay. What's in there that you don't connect with? Just so I'm really all the Adam McKay stuff, uh, <laughs> this Talladega nights. Yeah. Um, I've never seen step brothers. I know that's like a, that's like a sin or something. It's the same thing on steroids. 
Well, okay. Yeah. Can I ask you this? Because this was also my question as I was thinking about you not liking this. Do you enjoy like improv comedy? Like improvisational comedy? Like improvisational comedy. <laughs> I like crazy characters. <laughs> I like... Uh, parody and anecdotes? I like parody and anecdotes. Answer the question. I don't mind improv. I mean, I don't like bad improv. I don't think this is bad improv. I think, but you know the way these movies are made, right? There's like a skeleton. There's like a shell, and then all those people get in there, improvise a little bit, and then Adam McKay from like behind the camera from the chair will like yell the funniest kind of like Mad Lib things they come up with. So when Will Ferrell is just like, "What are you gonna try, London gentleman?" Blackbeard's delight, or when he keeps saying like, "Oh, Ov- Odin's raven." Like these are just like the twenty-fifth thing they have tried that they think are like a funny adjective and noun together. I don't think that's funny. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's not. I'm a sorry cl- to say, you like clever, and this is not clever at all. Chance, I'm looking for movies similar to Frasier in tone. <laughs> I think that kind of hits it on the head is that you really yeah. like Frasier and this is like not that. It's like that scene where uh, Niles asks Frasier, you don't think I'm a snob? And Frasier goes, of course I do. But like in a comforting way. Right. <laughs> I am a kind of a snob when it comes to movies and like this brand of humor does not like appeal to me in the strongest way. Yeah, if you are not tickled on like a syllabic level by names like Wes Mantooth or the cologne name London Gentleman, like you, I, I'm with you. It's, it's like I don't, I didn't speak French. I didn't like that movie. Is there anything you like about this movie? Can I say no? <laughs> sure, you can. <laughs> sure you can. Can Please I defend it? Like I, I'm, I'm eager to hear like what you have to say in its favor. In its favor, um, that everything is so incredibly exaggerated in a childish way that, like, for instance, in the scene, in the party scene, um, the drink that Ron Burgundy is drinking contains an orange slice, crazy straw, and umbrella. It's like everything is just a hat on a hat on a hat. Again, it's like eight-year-olds were like, uh, what does my dad drink? Like, let's put all the accoutrement of a cocktail, like, in a thing. Um, And then, of course, there's just, like, the classic over... Like, this movie's all about overstatement. Um, one One of the hardest times I laughed is... You know, Ron is slowly kind of mounting this argument as Veronica falls into peril, falls in that bear pit. Like, it's very clear they're going to come back together. But when she falls in the bear pit, Brian Fantana, played by Paul Rudd, says, Ron, I know it sounds harsh, but uh, God doesn't want her to live. (laughs) Which I think is pretty goddamn great. Um, But that's not doing it for you. What other lines can I try out on you? Please. Um, You're taking me back to my favorite part of 2004, which was listening to my high school friends quote Anchorman to me. Because, of course, they liked it, right? Everybody who was 14 liked this movie. Except for me, Chance. Yeah. and I didn't even at 14. And my friend Brent accuses me of not having a childhood. But this is one of those things where it's like, I can't do it, you kids. I'm too much of an adult. (laughs) I'm waiting for Whit Stillman. Yeah. yeah. I was. I was waiting for Whit Stillman. Another line that is very, that epitomizes the point I'm trying to make is where uh, 
you know, when Ron gets fired and Chris Parnell, who plays like the line producer or something, he's like under Fred Willard. He's Garth. And he's very upset that, you know, Ron has like blown this. And Ron goes, uh, Garth, if I were to give you some money out of my wallet, would that ease the pain? And it's not the same as like, you know, can I buy you off, Garth? It's that it's not just that he's bribing him. It's like, little boy, if I show you like daddy's shiny object, will that make the boo-boo better? It's like, it's like every, it's the whole thing. It's like my apartment smells of rich mahogany. It's just all these like symbols floating in the wind of like ridiculous masculinity by like these people who it's all they can say. It's all they have in their lives. And I think that's hilarious. I think it's related in like a goofball way to frankly, like what we like about Patrick Bateman, um, the character, not like his deeds. Um, but like, <laughs> I, I didn't, I hadn't confused the two. Okay. <laughs> Trying on, you know, exaggerated sort of like newsman losing their mind shtick. I'm way into it. All shades of that spectrum I'm into. But that's the interesting thing about American Psycho and the Patrick Bateman character is that at some point it is rooted in the real world. Neither the world here nor the characters. There's no straight person. It's hard to like get behind a movie when there's not a straight person there, including Veronica Cordingstone, because she's like kind of in on the limitations of this world. Right. She's seduced by the jazz flute. Yes. I liked the part where Ron Burgundy gets that milk, but then it's too hot to drink the milk and it doesn't quench him. Did you really like it? You seem like you're being no, sarcastic. No, I didn't like that <laughs> I part. I think milk is a bad choice is one of the funniest like comedy lines of the century. Milk was a bad choice? Milk okay. was a bad choice. Um, this is what I worried would happen to us is that I would just like start saying stuff and be like, yeah, I didn't like that one either. Um, I know. I'm like curled up into a little ball here, remembering high school. This is like the least fit, my least favorite part. Sure. This movie shows me what I didn't like about the movie Vice, in that it's just like let's throw some things at the wall with, you know, this sort of title card at the beginning that says like this is sort of based on fact, except for the fact that like we don't know much about Dick Cheney slash this is Ron Burgundy's story. And here's what we got for you. And you can do with it what you will. Like, I just don't understand that kind of filmmaking. I get it when you have like a Michael Lewis script, you know, or Michael Lewis inspired story with the big short. Because then it's like, oh, look at this mania tied to this like very streamlined thing. Yeah. But I don't, I just want somebody to come in and be like, no, guys, there's like a narrative here. And you have to like have, character intentions and things that make sense and are tethered to you know some sort of suspension of disbelief otherwise you're just like paying your money to watch somebody say fart and dick jokes and be sexist without any real sort of recompense i mean champ gets like need in the balls a lot of people get need in the balls in john wick three that's not a movie about (laughs) You can't, the transitive property doesn't work there. Well, Vice, you'll get no argument from me. We were talking about this. Like, Vice is not a good film. Vice is a fucking Yeah, mess. I've had a lot of Adam McKay in the past couple. So I watched Vice on an airplane and hadn't seen it and was so disappointed. I mean, in that I knew Dick Cheney was probably bad and I continue to maintain that opinion of him. But 
His fixations, it's interesting though, have not changed. I'm sure that like Twitter has noticed this, but I was kind of tickled when I realized it for the first time. The you know, the closeout card on the character of Brick Tamlin, played by Steve Carell, is that he goes on to work in the Bush administration, which is Adam McKay in 2004 being like, Bush sucks. And uh, later on, Steve Carell does go on to play a moron who works in the Bush administration in another of his movies. So he's not letting those things go. Yeah. Well, good for him. I'm glad that he's poking at things he thinks is funny. I just, we don't, we don't have the same sense of humor, I'm afraid. So just like the tonality of like Will Ferrell's like line delivery when he's just like a Modesto man clinging to life, like just doesn't do it for you. I think it's kind of funny when you say it. (laughs) I think there's something funny about people who quote these movies and there's like a certain humor into like how they decide to play the line. But I think the underlying Will Ferrell performance is just like, especially and unfortunately with the breadth of work he's done over that 15 year period. It hasn't gotten any you better. And it doesn't get, yeah, it doesn't get any better. It's that's the note. That's him playing, you know, every note he knows. Yeah. In a way, this is kind of like the Pacino incentive a woman moment for him. It's just like, wait, if I like throw my voice there, I get an Oscar. Like you guys like that. And then you can see him, you see Farrell over the next 15 years. Like, I don't know if this is... This is just him doing his Alex Trebek, but like with more sort of 1970s sexual politics. he's playing the straight man in the Jeopardy sketches. What are you talking about? But he's doing that sort of like announcer thing where he's like okay with this world because it is this television world. And while he moderates, like like he's underlyingly the reason that these things are unfolding in front of him, yeah. but like turned up to 11. Sure. The point I'm trying to make though, is that you can see him over the next 15 years. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I think you can infer it is like, he's not reading the script. He is like right. searching around for funny lines to the point where it's like, that's the only way I work. And we were just joking before this about, for some reason I've seen Holmes and Watson. And it is a movie that is like that hundred percent. And it's never been worse. Like he needs this kind of, Adam McKay blatantly unreal shell of an esoteric time in culture and film to make it pop. And I But that's why I think he's so funny, like as Frank from old school. Because like that guy is rooted in reality and he's rooted to this woman that he's engaged and then married to. And then the dissolution of their marriage as he goes down that like Will Ferrell thing is funny to watch because you see this guy slowly descending into madness. Yeah. And then there's that funny payoff at the end where he sort of comes back and, you know, Vince Vaughn's just like, don't worry about it, Frank. We're going to find you a one bedroom apartment. Like it's all <laughs> going to be fine. You know, and it's just kind of funny to see a Will Ferrell like Ron Burgundy character like after going through the trajectory of a movie, then have to put the pieces of his life together in a one bedroom apartment in like some California suburb. Yeah. You're right though, but that's, that is a shred of reality. There's no reality in this movie. No, no, there's none. So like, yeah, his descent is only just like, do do you want to see like what a cartoon character would be like if his hairpiece and mustache sagged? Cause like, he's not a real guy. Um, no, I think that this, I mean, I don't, I don't know what like accord we're gonna come to. It seems like we're coming from just like wildly different sensibilities. I think this movie's I'm a not good good. Interested in coming to an accord with you? Oh my um, goodness! What about a street brawl? You want to put a trident through my heart? Not this time. All right. It's a bad bad. 
It's a bad, bad. You're weird. And I Chance agrees with me. You know. You just heard him. <laughs> you just heard 19 minutes of our accord. Oh, God damn it, Ballard. I do respect you, though. Um, well, do we want to talk for another hour about broadcast news? Or should I just do that? Or do you, should we end the I show? I haven't the strength. Okay. Well, folks, listen to old episodes of Be Real at berealpodcast.com com check out the other shows on the playlist podcast network at the playlist.net you can also get both the playlist shows and our shows on spotify if you're interested in catching your podcast that way i also checked the other week to make sure we're on luminary if anyone's migrating over there because of their promos and whatnot um but yeah we're gonna be back in a little bit uh we're gonna talk some last black man in san francisco coming up got an interview in relation to that uh but then otherwise We'll be back in your ears about this dire, dire summer of movies in some respect, buddy. Until soon. It's kind of like... Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon delight. My motto's always been, when it's right, it's right. Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night? When everything's a little clearer in the light of day. And we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite. Looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Rubbing sticks and stones together make us partake night.